because tonight we're going to be speaking with Joe O'Brien um, from Head First, uh, the account on Instagram. And we're going to be talking all about behavior change. And I think that, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to say first, I'm really looking forward to this conversation just because I think behavior change is one of the areas that, in nutrition, in exercise, that is least considered or at least not considered enough um, as regards to its importance. Um, Joe is incredibly prompt. He's already online. So um, I'm going to just put a quick question here before I leave him on. Just let me know where are you watching from? Um, hey, Health Hon, great to see everybody joining in. Uh, where are you watching from? Let me know, guys. Um, and remember, if you can, please do um, uh, like the post down here. And if you have any questions, please do ask them as well. Okay, without any further ado, I'm going to let Joe on. Now, fingers crossed. Uh, Isha, nice to see you. Diane, Canada, wow. Hello, hello, hello. Hey, Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Richie, how are you? Not too bad at all. Um, I want to say thank you very, very much for joining me tonight. Yeah, no problem at all. No, delighted to be on. Absolutely. Um, I'm really, really excited because, uh, as I was saying, it's an area within nutrition, or at least apl applicable to nutrition and health in general, um, that I really, really want to talk about, and that's behavior change. And I suppose, just before we go any further with it, um, would you be able to kind of give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself, you know, who you are, um, you know, your background, and just everything that has led to what you're doing right now? Yeah, sure. Um, might be a long story. Um, so my background is in, my, I did an undergrad in psychology, um, finished in 2016, went and did a master's in health psychology and uh, just recently started about a month ago, um, a professional doctorate in health psychology. So what health psychology is, just for people who are unaware of what that means and what it is, it's the link between your physical and mental health. So it's how your kind of, how psychological factors impact your physical health, which we'll be talking about a lot, and how, you know, physical um, physical health behaviors can impact your mental health too. So it's a bit of both. It's how they both kind of interlink. And within that, there's a lot of stuff around behavior change and the underlying psychological factors of behavior change. Now, what got me here, I guess, and why I'm tuned into an Instagram live and people are tuning in to watch from different areas of the world is um, I started Instagram about just over a year ago, I think December 2018 and it's my handle is head first zero i do a, a podcast as well called the head first podcast and basically my page and, and what i do is kind of spreading information around mental health spreading stuff around health psychology that's kind of based on evidence and that kind of thing so i guess my interest in health psychology specifically is that i love the kind of, i've always loved the kind of physical health behaviors i've always had an interest in nutrition i wanted to do dietetics in school but i didn't do chemistry so i wasn't able to actually go and do it in college um so all of those kind of factors led me to where i am right now and, and this kind of interest in nutrition and the psychological factors related to nutrition fantastic um like w one thing that you, i just want to touch on there is you, you kind of spoke about some of the, the physical factors that are related to let's say psychological well-being and you know things like nutrition and um and physical health so, so exercise so i think one thing that comes up a lot is that when people think about mental health they rarely think about the importance of those kind of physical aspects um 
how prevalent do you find that belief is and kind of working with people, you know, as a professional, do you find people are not so um, eager to, to make changes to those areas um, if the end goal is to benefit their mental health? It's a difficult one, yeah, because a lot of, I guess, mental health practitioners wouldn't be specifically trained in those health behaviours and how important they are. They're often trained in psychotherapy, which is obviously incredibly important and incredibly effective. Um, but they wouldn't maybe have the knowledge of how sleep is so important or the relevance for sleep in terms of their brain health. It might be how nutrition impacts their brain health. It might be how exercise impacts their brain health. So all of those things are really, really important. The field of nutritional psychiatry is really, really growing. There's a lot of really interesting papers being published at the moment on how dietary interventions can be an adjunctive treatment for mental health issues. So how important our nutrition is to fueling our brain. And it makes sense, right? Because everyone's always told, you know, you eat to fuel your body and your body needs nutrients. But we're forgetting that a brain, our brain is such a huge part of that. And what we eat is essentially fueling our, our mind as well. It's, it's fueling our brain and, and how our brain functions. So without the right nutrients, not only will our, our body suffer, but also our, our brain and our, our mental health. And without the kind of core fundamental structure of your, your brain health, um, you know, you're, you're going to struggle with, with your mental health too. So diet is a, is a huge thing. Um, they've also found that exercise um, increases, what's the right word, mental resilience. So they've done some really interesting research where They've, in, they've purposely initiated a stress response in the brain. What they found is that people who exercise um, return to their baseline levels um, far quicker than people who don't exercise. So exercise can also build mental resilience, as, as can you know, kind of dietary interventions can give you a healthy brain and kind of help your, your mental health as well. So that kind of aspect is really cool. I think it is definitely not neglected. I guess it's just a, a lack of awareness at the moment about how important those factors can be, but they're definitely growing. And obviously those factors are really, really important. But um, you said yourself that, you know, a lot of healthcare professionals aren't trained or aren't educated around those. Do you, in, let's say, a future, do you, do you see um, a case where healthcare professionals are, are better trained in, let's say, nutrition, uh, exercise, kind of sleep science? Or do you see a more multidisciplinary kind of team where you've got uh, somebody who's focusing more on the kind of specific uh, psychology side of things. You've got somebody who's working on nutrition, somebody working on um, exercise. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think it's feasible for, for example, everybody to, to be trained in every modality. I don't think it's, I don't think for a psychologist to be trained fully to, you know, let's say master's or doctor level in nutrition as well as kind of sleep, as well as all these different factors is, is feasible for, for the individual. So I think multidisciplinary team is definitely the way forward. I think in the UK, they certainly have more of an open or more progressive. We, we don't have that mindset in Ireland right now. I know that the, some of the health psychologists that I'm doing my doctorate with, they would work as part of an MDT. Some people, for example, do weight management. Some people do smoking cessation. Um, and they work in these different fields. So there, there are some MDTs, there's some multidisciplinary teams that, um, I guess have kind of utilized that those different skill sets in order to, to manage one issue. But I think it's kind of, I know we talked about this before, but we, we kind of neglect in a way we're not, we're not giving patients the right care. If we don't include the different aspects, if we don't include the psychological factors, if we don't include the nutrition factors, the sleep, if we don't, if we just ignore those things, um, 
in terms of someone's treatment, we're not really giving them the the best treatment that we can offer. And yeah, it might not be feasible right now, but that's where I kind of see the future going. It's kind of a, uh, I think Kimberly Wilson, who's food and psych on here, would call it whole body mental health. I no, I, I completely agree because I think um, there are so many different aspects. I, I think if we if we think of health as a whole, we're not looking um, at one particular aspect. We can't say that you know look after your nutrition and you take care of your health. You know we can't say look after your exercise and you take care of your health. You have to think of all of these things in a more holistic sense. You know, and you you've got your mental health, you've got your sleep, you've got um, exercise, nutrition, and like you said it's very, very difficult for somebody to become an expert on all of those, or at least to become proficient in helping people with all of those different aspects of, of their lifestyle. So, um, yeah, like like you said, a, a multidisciplinary team where you've got all of these people who can help out um, is, is, is obviously the ideal. Um, it's probably the more expensive and potentially not as feasible in some situations option. But, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's always nice to think about ideals when we can. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think, look, that's that's the progressive route, right? Yeah. It, um, it, it, go ahead, sorry. Uh, one thing that I wanted to to talk about today, and like I know we 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 really good. We could go on and talk about nutrition and how it applies specifically to mental health um, and to psychology. But I want to kind of take the opposite approach in the podcast uh, in in the podcast today, just because I want to go from how. Uh, the psychology side of things can help on the nutrition side. And with that, I want to kind of really, really talk about behavior change, which I know is something that you're particularly interested in yourself. And I was just wondering if you could tell us first, before we get into that, where did your interest in behavior change come from originally? Well, like I said, I always had an interest in nutrition, dietetics, wasn't ever able to, to do it. But from studying psychology and specifically health psychology, I guess I went into health psychology for a totally different reason um, because I was, I was kind of interested in the area of stress and how stress can manifest in physical symptoms. But then when I got into actually doing the masters, they talked an awful lot about things like habits and things like behavior change. And that registered with me as so, so important. To me, I say this a lot on my page, but to me, the future of public health incorporate psychology in far more areas than just mental health. So I guess I just saw a kind of a gap. It, it, it doesn't make sense for, you know, let's say public health interventions at the moment, they've been throwing information at us for 20 or 30 years, but all the graphs in terms of, of you know, weight related issues, non-communicable diseases, all of those things are all still trajecting in the same way. They're all still going in the same direction. So for me, like there's a missing link there. And to me, it's both environmental. Um, so like on a kind of broader level in terms of like the, how the government can impact it. So things like, um, I guess, policy change. So that's obviously one aspect, but the other aspect is psychology that we're missing. Um, because, you know, we, we've given all the information to people. People generally, I would say, I don't know, you probably know more about this than I do, but I'd say people generally know what a, a decent dietary pattern looks like. You know, people know, for a large part, maybe not um, people who do the carnivore diet, but generally fruit and veg is good for us, right? And people kind of know that and a, a kind of balance of, of other things in moderation um, can be considered kind of a healthy diet. We know that kind of the Mediterranean diet is, is one of the ones that's generally thought of as one of the healthier dietary patterns. I think most people know within reason um, what a good dietary pattern looks like, but 
it's very difficult for them to implement it. And that's where the kind of psychological factors come in. How do how does psychology impact your decision making? How does it impact behavior change? Um, as well as that, things like um, the environment, like I said, how our food environment makes us, for example, choose X over Y. So to me, the future of public health, the future of nutrition um, and exercise and things like that has such a psychological component that that's kind of where I got my passion for behavior change. It just seems like a no brainer that uh, we need to consider this. Yeah, it, it does sound like a no brainer, but it's very, very interesting to when we consider that the majority of, let's say, dietary interventions or even public health interventions that are um, carried out are carried out with any psychological uh, aspect to the interventions at all. And, and that's kind of that's kind of the crux of things, because you mentioned there that, you know, a lot of let's say the chronic diseases that may be related to um, poor lifestyle habits. So things like um, poor dietary habits uh, or lack of exercise, lack of activity. A lot of those conditions that people are perfectly well educated about, um, you know, people know that they should be eating well. They, they do know in general what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing to maintain that. People know they should be active. Aren't working because we can see that the rates of chronic diseases are increasing at the moment. Um, and that's why I want to talk about behavior change because it's something that, and I'm not, I don't want to kind of say, okay, it's, it's the, the savior of everything. And like, you know, once we nail the behavior change side of things, everything's going to be good. But it is, or potentially is a very, very key part of the puzzle that I want to talk about. And I was wondering if, if you could give us a little bit of an introduction or a little bit of an overview of what the current research or science around behavior change is at the moment uh, as, it, as it regards to um, health habits. Okay, well, specifically related to, to diet and nutrition, um, we know that the dietary interventions at the moment don't work. And we know that behavior change, well, when I say don't work, they work a, a small percentage of the time. And we know that behavior change is incredibly difficult and has loads of different factors that are important in relation to making those, those behavior changes. Um, when we look at the dietary research and, and kind of weight management interventions, um, I think they work between 10 to 30% of the time, depending on kind of what kind of stats you're looking at or what the criteria are. So I was comparing this to, to going to the doctor and, and saying, you know, if you wanted some sort of a, a treatment for what you're, what you're going through, and the doctor said, yeah, there's a, a 10 to 30% chance of this working, it'd kind of kick you while you're down. You'd, you'd feel, you wouldn't feel great about those odds, right? You wouldn't feel great that whatever you're going to take or whatever your treatment is only succeeds about 10 to 30 percent of the time and to me i guess the important factors to consider are in relation to behavior change are psychological factors so we hear an awful lot about emotional eating we hear a lot about binge eating i'm sure you as a nutrition professional will hear an awful lot more of that um because people present to to dietitians and present to nutritionists present to strength and conditioning coaches in order to manage their kind of exercise and dietary habits. So when we talk about behavior change and what's working and what isn't working, we know at the moment what doesn't work. Um, and there's some emerging research about what might work in terms of the psychological aspects of things. So one of the ones that predicts kind of long-term maintenance of, of, um, of weight or after somebody loses weight, the kind of long-term predictors of, of how well they're managing um, are largely psychological. So one of the papers I, I, I know I, I talked to you about before, um, 
talked about this idea of tension and this mental tension. So those factors were, were things like the way we think about food, the way we approach food, having um, unmet psychological needs that, that might predict your eating behavior, um, the kind of idea that you always have to override your old habits. All of these things are psychological factors, but they're the predictors of how well someone's going to stick to their dietary intervention. So I think that's really interesting because what some of what at least predicts it best is psychological. But when we address those issues, for example, a dietitian or a nutritionist isn't necessarily trained to the same level on the psychological factors. And I think that's kind of negligent to the to the people who are turning up in, in, in practices, not obviously on, on the nutritionist's behalf. Like they're they're doing all that they can, but it seems negligent not to consider the psychological factors as well. No, no, absolutely. Because I, I think you can know everything there is to know about helping somebody um, improve their diet. You know, you can know everything that you want to know about macros. You can know everything you want to know about dietary patterns, um, about when to eat, about giving them good recipes and things like that. But if you're not helping somebody with the psychological side of things, and, and I, I will openly say that I've, I've been guilty of this in the past. I genuinely feel that it's an area that I need to improve in hugely myself. Um, but I think that we're letting people down. And like when I say we, I'm, I'm talking about nutrition as a whole. Um, at least those of us who aren't as w kind of well in the know about, you know, behavior change techniques and something like that. Um, and, and it is worrying because, like you said, you know, th those those figures that you quoted, you know, 10 to 30 percent of um, dietary interventions not being successful in the long term. Um, that's it is disgraceful. Um, it's it's not good for people. And like you said, it can be a bit of a kick in the teeth for people who need to make a change if they know that, you know, their chances of succeeding are very, very low. Um, one one thing that I, I regularly hear from from people I work with. Um, and even people who I interact with on online uh, are the barriers that they have in their life to making changes. So people like, you know, if I suggest a certain change that somebody needs to, to make in their diet um, or in their exercise habits, people will often come forward and say, look, I have this. Uh, I can't. So I can't do that. OK, um, I don't have time to do this. I I'm not able to do that. I don't like doing this, whatever. People come up with certain barriers. And I, I'm not saying that to, let's say, to I'm, I'm not um, making light of their the barriers that they have. You know, they may be very, very realistic, especially to that person at all. But do you think there's any particular reason that people hold on to some barriers particularly strongly? And do you know of any way that, you know, or any kind of, let's say, uh, evidence-based way we have for overcoming those those barriers to to change yeah i think it's a tough one right because when you think about the difficult barriers i think they're difficult because we're not going about them the right way in terms of the interventions these people are turning up and they're looking for dietary interventions and they're looking for dietary change now it's going to be very for example let's say somebody turns up and they have uh for example, unmet psychological needs. Let's say they eat when they're lonely or they get quite down and that's their kind of, um, let's say they're their kind of comfort or they're at the moment that's their coping mechanism. I think it's incredibly difficult to, to manage that as a nutrition professional or a dietitian when managing your emotion and your mood isn't something that you're trained in. If I said to you, how, how confident would you be if someone turned up and said, 
um, I don't want to change my um, I don't want to change my diet, but I have unmet psychological needs, and I want you to address them with me. I'm I'm sure you wouldn't say you're hugely competent in addressing somebody's um, unmet psychological needs, whereas that's where a psychologist could come in, even though like that would be the driver of that behaviour. For example, that could be the underlying factor that is expressing itself through through food. So I think when we talk about how difficult these barriers are, I think they're less difficult when we address them appropriately with the right professionals. Um, now, while education is obviously a huge part, there nobody's going to get anywhere without the kind of um, understanding of nutrition and how it impacts them. And for, for example, a, a percentage of people will get by on just their education and they can make those changes themselves. But for somebody who has those psychological barriers, it's important to address with a, a professional who understands the, the psychological barriers um, more. So I guess what I'm trying to say is addressing them through the right means makes it easier. So when people have X, Y, and Z that's going on in their life and it's related to psychology, addressing it with a psychology professional is kind of best practice or the, the, the best way to, to take those steps forward. And I think that's why it's important that the fields of nutrition and psych psychology interact. No, absolutely. Um, and, and I think they, they will need to continue to interact over time, um, because especially if we're talking about that multidisciplinary disciplinary approach that you, that you mentioned. It's something that, you know, I, th I think a lot of nutritionists will, will get to a point or may, maybe even notice straight away with some clients that they're working with. And I'm, I'm going to say this, if they're a decent nutritionist, because a decent nutritionist should get to know their client and get to know their motivations and what's going on. In, their, in the rest of their life as much as they can to get as good a picture of that, that individual as they can get. And from that picture that they've kind of established of that person, they should be able to determine, does this person need more help that I'm not able to give them right now? Does this person need some sort of psychological support that I can't offer? And would they be either better off going for that psychological support first perhaps, or would they, you know, be better off doing it, you know, in, in tandem with, with what we're doing together. Uh, and, I, and I think nutritionists and dietitians and people working in, in the health sphere um, need to be quite realistic about, about making that decision and, and, and deciding, okay, uh, it, I suppose it's, it, it's just referring out and referring out to somebody who's got the, the toolkit that they, they need. Totally. I, I think it's really interesting on that because I feel like that makes sense to me and you, um, but I think from a client perspective, when somebody turns up and you say, um, oh, you want to make this type of, of change in, in nutrition, I think you should see a psychologist. It raises a few eyebrows. You know, I think there's still that, I guess, lack of awareness, lack of knowledge, maybe stigma as well involved in this, that psychologists are for mental health issues. And for you to be recommended a psychologist means um, you're being treated for maybe a mental health condition. And you think, well, you know, that's not important because... I don't have a mental health issue. I'm here to change my diet. So I think, I guess the knowledge around health psychology and even utilizing psychology in terms of behavior change um, needs to be addressed as well. I think that's really, really important because, um, yeah, it's just, it's like the last place you'd look, right? It's like, oh, you want to change your diet? Let's go to see a psychologist. That Nobody ever, ever kind of says that. So I think that's definitely one factor in terms of overcoming the kind of stigma and, and spreading the kind of proper education around that. It's, it's quite important. Just on, on what you mentioned there about stigma, um, so this is something that I'm, I'm completely unaware of, but um, how, 
serious is the stigma around getting help with mental health or speaking with somebody in let's say a counseling sense or somebody in, in a psychology sense is there pushback or is there a considerable amount of pushback from people um when it comes to that because obviously you mentioned in that case like so- somebody if they're not expecting it you know um if they're not not ex- if they're you know looking for dietary help and you know you're saying you you know you could you could potentially work with a little bit on the psychological side of things you know people might be immediately pushed back just because it's unexpected but in general what, what's that pushback like it's different in different areas um i think in mental health specifically it's incredibly difficult to get over stigma issues um it's a really hard place for someone to be incredibly vulnerable with someone that they don't really know um and i think that's really hard for people there's um a lot of shame involved a lot of a lot of difficulties opening up about things that are often really hard to speak about in terms of the stigma related to this i think it's more around lack of knowledge about the different fields of of psychology because you could go to a psychologist but it could be an educational psychologist who's diagnosing for example adhd or 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 autism or something along those lines so there are so many different fields of psychology and i think health psychology is so new and so um i guess unknown as well that people still don't like if you might feel judged if someone says to you you should go and see a psychologist because of this behavior change thing whereas i think when you work as a team for example if it was me and you and we were delivering interventions together you would be saying you know i work with joe because he works on the on the mental skill side of things and i think even just phrasing it differently can be really helpful another thing is i feel like people go to coaches because there's less stigma people talk about cbt specifically and i think some of the cbt the people seem to be more open about going to cbt because they hear cbt and it seems it's a bit of a buzzword at the moment i think the cbt thing is really interesting because it's not therapy you're not going to therapy you're doing cbt whereas if you go to a therapist it's something else even though cbt is therapy i think there's kind of less stigma and less barriers to going to cbt because it seems like a kind of a a buzzword it doesn't seem like that is therapy it seems like it's its own thing so i think look it depends on the field but there is a lot of pushback from stigma i know in the nutrition um area we see a lot of weight stigma and that's a huge huge barrier for people um so that's one of the ones i think the bps published recently about how we need to address weight stigma and i know there's a lot of people online who do a lot of um who do a big push for kind of uh, addressing weight stigma so look we see it in all areas whether it's in the kind of physical field i know for example someone who's who's struggling with their weight might feel stigmatized going to the gym it might be self stigma but it might actually be you know people around them in the gym that that actually actually judge them so i think stigma and the pushback is is evident in all areas and i think it just depends where it comes out you know for example the trauma thing or or the vulnerability for counseling is is one thing and then the weight stigma is, is another i think the stigma in all kind of areas absolutely and and i think that can potentially change and i i know it has changed in recent years and and like if we speak even from uh, that perspective in ireland um 10 20 years ago if you even mentioned the word mental health people would kind of people would get awkward um around it and i think things are a lot better these days um obviously that there's still plenty of room for improvement um but i think uh let's say social media and just being open about these kind of having open conversations about it is is something kind of that can help people um to kind of be happy with that decision to kind of to to seek that kind of help um Definitely. Uh another thing that you mentioned um just before we got on to uh this the, that particular uh stigma around um psychology was you were talking about education um and educating people about better health and 
one thing that I feel has happened um, in, let's say, the, the world of nutrition is that education and, and to a lesser extent, the words training has become, they've almost become like buzzwords um, about how important they are for, for helping people with, with their diet and with their nutrition. Um, and I agree that education is incredibly important, but it seems that in behavior change literature, there's a very, very clear distinction between what constitutes education and what constitutes training um, for certain people or, or teaching people. Um, uh, and I was wondering if you could talk about that difference and how it actually applies to behavior change. Okay, so firstly, the information thing. There's a thing, there's a concept we talk about in, in psychology a lot, specifically in health psychology, called the behavior intention gap. Um, so this is the idea that people want to make change, and let's say they start over here. People are over here, and they want to be over here. Now, they get the knowledge over here, um, but unfortunately, knowledge doesn't predict how well you're going to get to here. And that's kind of what we talked about earlier, in that we spoke about how people know the right things in general of, of what a healthy dietary pattern looks, but it's about bridging the gap between intending to do something and actually carrying it out. So how that relates to behavior change is that specifically in relation to, to psychological factors, um, there's a, a model called the behavior change wheel. And what that model suggests is that one of the factors that we need is the psychological capability to change. Now, in terms of, in relation to dietary and, and nutrition, there are certain aspects of that that are, are incredibly important to, to address in terms of making those long-term changes, in terms of, in terms of bridging the gap between um, intention and actually carrying out the behavior. So a couple of those things, for example, that are important to consider is one is emotion. So one of the factors that's really important in driving our behavior is emotion. Uh, I know you've probably seen it in, in your practice and, and I hear it a lot is that when people are, for example, hungry, when they're alone, when they're tired, when they're stressed, when they're angry, if they're upset, that food is a natural comfort for them. Now, for a lot of people that can be problematic, it can relate to kind of binging behaviors as well, but emotion is, is the kind of core principle. So if you're trying to bridge that, um, bridge that gap between actually carrying out the behavior and intending to carry out the behavior, um, it's important to address the thing that's underlying for that person. And if that person, if that is emotion, then it's addressing emotion. Then you have things like uh, previous habits. So if you're, you're obviously more likely to do something if you've done it in the past, and the more we've repeated that habit, for example, if it's, if it's going for four or five pints to, you know, chill out after work on a Friday. If that is your habit and you have to then bridge the gap to making a healthier decision or a healthier, engage in a healthier behavior, um, addressing kind of your previous identity as the guy who goes out and has the five pints might be important. So again, another psychological factor. Then we talk about, you'll see it a lot on social media, how we label things as healthy and unhealthy. So this is the idea of dichotomous thinking. And it's one of the one of the kind of main predictors of how well someone's going to succeed is the way they look at food. When we say healthy or unhealthy or, or have these black and white views, it makes people less likely to change their behavior. Because what this often feeds into is, for example, the diet cycle feeds into a binging cycle where people think once they go outside of their plan, once they go outside of their strict, um, I'm not allowed, allowed to eat X and I'm not allowed to eat Y. So when they do eat X and Y, they could have guilt related to food. They could kind of 
go on a massive binge because they feel like they've blown it and they're going to start again on Monday. Um, and this fuels the kind of emotion and then restrict further. And then when they're in that restriction phase, they have that black and white thinking. When they go outside of that, it can fuel the, the kind of diet cycle again. So I could go on forever. There's, like I said to you earlier, there's 93 um, different behavior change techniques, um, lots of which are psychological factors. So when we talk about behavior change, I think the psychological factors, I could literally go on forever. That's why I think it's so important that psychology and nutrition interact because to address the kind of psychological capability um, the capacity to change is, is really, really important. The other aspects of that model are environment. Um, I know, is it Jenny Rossborough? Um, she's Hello Healthy You on here. She does a lot of work on how the environment impacts how, uh, how we eat. I think that's a really, really important factor going forward in terms of public health, because when we talk about that, I often make the case that we should restrict certain foods and we should, um, like the government should restrict what foods are available to us. And um, the more we change our food environment, the more that's going to change public health behavior. Um, now, a lot of people will argue back, oh, that's kind of a nanny state mentality. We need to have autonomy. We need to have choice. But also we're forgetting that we, I think, unbeknownst to ourselves, have very little choice in, in the foods that we actually want to eat because we're, we're eating things that we don't really want. And I think the marketing side of things and how food is pushed on us makes the decisions very easy to eat the kind of highly palatable foods, the foods that we don't necessarily want to eat, but um, they're highly profitable, I'd imagine, for the, the food companies. So as well as addressing the psychological factors, I think the social factors and the environment are, are really important, as well as the motivation to change. So they're the kind of three key components of that, that model. I, I think you, you, you spoke about, like just, just what you mentioned there, just really, really highlight, highlights the complexity of everything that goes on with, um, with diet change and with exercise, because you can have the absolute best of intentions. You can have all of the education in the world around food, um, you can be very, very well motivated when it comes to, to making behavior change. Um, but that particular aspect that you've spoken about there, like environment, um, where we have, you know, it's, it's easy for us to walk out of our house, get into a car, drive to work, sit in our bums all day, drive home, sit in our bum until we go to bed, rinse, repeat. Um, and then from a food perspective, you know, we are literally bombarded with food advertising everywhere uh cheap food is very very widely available convenient food that is probably not ideal for helping people with um their goals and, and i'm speaking very very generally when i say like people's goals are probably to to maintain a healthy weight and you know like like you mentioned ultra processed hyper palatable foods is everywhere and that can those kind of aspects of our environment can, can throw a, a massive monkey wrench into the works of you know the behavior change that we, we need to do. So there is the aspect that the individual needs to work on. Yeah. But the government does very, very much have a role to play. Um, and while, while I'm, I, I am I'm undecided about their, the role in regulation of foods, um, I think there's definite pros and cons to it. Um, I think it is definitely a, a conversation that, that needs to be had. You know, people need to be aware that, you know, if the government can, can play a role, in reducing our access to food that's leading to poor health, should they do it? Um, yeah, but it's a, definitely a very, very interesting conversation to have. Yeah, I, I, I love that aspect of it. I think 
I think government intervention is important in the future of, of changing our behaviour. Um, I don't really know where. Obviously, in the UK, they've brought in the sugar tax. Um, I'd be very interested to see if public health or any aspect of public health changes because of that. I think it's very interesting because obviously it raises money for maybe other health initiatives. But the end goal of, of all of this, this like getting companies to reformulate their products is in order to create population change, right? It's in order to create population health change. And I, I wonder, how, have those interventions um, had an actual impact, impact on public health rather than just the reformulation of drinks? Like, are people just getting their sugar elsewhere? Are they just choosing the more expensive, um, more sugar content um, you know, drink instead? So those kind of interventions are, are really interesting, but I wonder how far we need to go before we actually see public health change. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, it's something that we will, will, you know, have to wait a few years before we see the full results of the sugar tax. The, the preliminary results on it are, are let's say, promising. Um, but um, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, not gonna put all of my eggs in one basket on the the sugar tax alone, like um, saving everybody's health. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm particularly interested. So I, I know you're doing your per, your professional doctorate right now. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, um, you know, your doctors, what's, what's planned for the next few years, and some of the research questions that you want to look at um, as regards to, to behavior change. Yeah, so I started this about a month ago. Since then, I've ha only had to kind of plan what the next two or three years is going to look like. As part of that, I need to um, submit for publication three different research projects. As part of those research projects, what I, my initial plan is, is that what I want to do is, is to show the importance of psychology and health psychology in making health-related behavior change. So over the next three years, I think it'd be really cool to develop a tool or at least a screening kind of uh, questionnaire or something along those lines to see how much someone might, may or may not um, benefit from psychological intervention in relation to behavior change. I think that's important for a couple of reasons. I think when we look at, let's say somebody goes in and they have some sort of disease or some sort of um, issue, health issue that's related to poor lifestyle. They maybe aren't exercising enough and they need to make some sort of dietary changes in order to improve that, that kind of lifestyle. At the moment, regardless of what may or may not be helpful for them, they're kind of told, you know, here's a dietitian, here's a nutritionist. But we know that a new works 10 to 30% of the time in kind of the long-term aspect. Um, so the long-term behavior change, it, it works quite a small percentage. And I think it'd be really cool for health professionals to have a screening tool or some sort of a, an ability to gauge what intervention might be best. So I'd imagine from your practice and from speaking to other health professionals that psychology is often a core driver of people's behavior. Um, specifically in relation to this. So you think of the things like emotional eating, you think of the, you know, the bad habits kind of aspect of it, you think of the black and white thinking. All of these things are psychological factors that could be addressed with psychological intervention. So I think it'd be really cool if, for example, somebody walked into a GP and their GP said, instead of saying, let's just go to a dietitian or a weight loss intervention, that they could screen somebody and say, well, maybe a psychological intervention would be important here because you have a good idea of maybe nutrition and it's the psychological barriers that are holding you back. So over the next three years, I'd love to have, at the end of it, to have the ability to show that 
psychological interventions have a huge, huge role to play in terms of someone creating long-term behavior change. Um, that'd be my kind of end goal. Now, like I said, I've only planned it. So all these plans could go up in smoke and um, you are doing a PhD yourself. So um, you will know all about all the kind of barriers that, that pop up, but um, that's the initial plan at the moment. I think that'd be a really cool tool for healthcare professionals to have rather than, for example, you attempting to work with somebody who has huge psychological barriers and, and just doing your best with them and, and uh, working with them as best you can um, to have the appropriate screening tool or, or ability to to gauge whether someone might need psychological support instead. Absolutely. Um, I, just as somebody who yeah, who's doing a PhD, I can guarantee you that uh, your concepts and your plans will, uh, and I'm using specifically, evolve uh, over time. Um, <laughs> I, I, I actually had this conversation uh, last week with, with a colleague uh, doing her doing her PhD as well, and one thing that we said is it's really, really good to go into the PhD with the wildest, craziest goals and dreams that you can possibly have. Um, they may get a little bit diluted over time. doesn't make a difference. You know, it, it's, it's starting with what you want to do and finding out, kind of focusing on what you really, really want to do over those, um, over those few years. Um, but just to get back to your specific topic, um, you, you know, you mentioned about the screening tool for seeing um, who might benefit better from more psychological help. Uh, do you think that there is probably a good chance um, that a very, very large proportion of people could benefit from that psychological intervention? I think so, yeah. I think so. When you look at, for example, the paper that I sent you about um, how the, the, the kind of factors that predict how well someone's going to achieve their, their dietary changes, it's largely psychological variables that are predicting how well people adhere to, to what um, what kind of dietary intervention that they're they're given. So when you think of that, it seems it seems negligent that we don't address that already. I think psychological barriers are definitely a huge factor because psychology isn't just mental health, right? Psychology is the study of behavior and the mind. So if you're looking at behavior psychology is related to everything. Psychology is related to our language, us speaking right now, communication is related to our eating behavior, our kind of, even our kind of reactionary behaviors that we don't even think about, those kind of natural habits, those reflexes. Um, so psychology is talking about behavior and that behavior can be eating, it can be exercise, but it can be a host of other things. I think understanding behavior as a psychologist, specifically in relation to nutrition and health, um, can be so, so helpful. Even if somebody comes in and they don't even present with a psychological barrier, for example, they present with something else. Knowing the psychological barriers could be so, so important for that person going forward, even if they haven't had those psychological issues before. So I think it's part of what I'm doing as well. So it's, I, I explained to you um, before we started that I'm not actually doing a PhD, I'm doing a professional doctorate. As part of a professional doctorate, you meet competencies and you have to do multiple different competencies over the course of your three years in order to, to qualify as a, as a health psychologist. One of those is teaching and training. So we have to develop a doctorate level competency in teaching and training. As part of my training, what I'm developing at the moment is a, a, a CPD, a, a continuous professional development course for um, nutrition and health professionals um, in order to kind of understand this behavior change stuff as, as, as well as they can. So moving forward, they know that 
you know, if this person has struggled previously with dietary interventions and hasn't been able to make those changes, here are some of the factors that might be important and here are some of the techniques that you could use with those people. So I think having more training for nutritional professionals in this is, is really important. So giving you the kind of basics of the psychology of behavior change, but as well as that, knowing what's within and, and you know, outside of your competencies as well would be really important. Absolutely. Um, just to touch about some of those kind of behavior techniques, um, change techniques that people can use. I was wondering in, let's say, um, because I, I know when we talk about behavior change techniques, a lot of them are going to be universally applicable to, you know, whatever behavior you need to change. But I was wondering um, in the sphere of health, uh, nutrition, exercise, what are some of the more common behavior change techniques that uh, people might be able to employ to help um, basically improve the outcome of, of an intervention with, with diet and exercise with someone. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I think the commonly used ones may not be that helpful for people who have struggled before. So if you think about, I guess, the one or two of the, the main ones that would be kind of goal setting, that's obviously one of the behavior change techniques that everyone goes through when they see a nutritionist. What do you want to achieve? How are you going to achieve it? One thing that people miss in goal setting is the process goals. And what process goals are, they're the actual behavior. They're the actual, what are you going to do to get from A to B? So I think what pe people sometimes miss within that, they say, right now I'm here and I want to, for example, weight loss goal of, I want to lose five kilograms. And they focus on let's lose five kilograms, let's lose five kilograms, rather than what are the behaviors that we need to do and what are the barriers in place for me to achieve those behaviors? Um, so I think we've, goal setting is one of the behavior change techniques that are, there goes my notes, um, there that um, people kind of use all, all the time, but they're not necessarily helpful unless they're employed in the right way. The other one is self-monitoring. So monitoring your behavior, creating behavior logs, that can be really helpful for people to identify kind of their patterns of behavior and those kind of things. Again, there's a, a, a flaw in that if we don't do it the right way, whereas you might identify patterns of your behavior and you realize, I eat when I'm really emotional. For example, I said those um, emotional states that people are in when they're more likely to binge. Um, they are uh, being hungry, being alone, being uh, tired, um, those kind of emotional factors. But if you identify those within self-monitoring, having to address them is a whole different story. So they're two of the kind of main common ones that I, I'd say people use. I think what people could use going forward and what's, what's more helpful in relation to um, behavior change and nutrition is developing a thing called psychological flexibility. And that is that people say flexibility in relation to dieting as like if it fits your macros, but it's not quite that. It would be more so things like um, not having rules around what you do. Um, so looking at things as the bigger picture of uh, black and white thinking. So instead of healthy and unhealthy foods that you can see it, that there's a gray area and that there's balance. Um, and the, like these things take time, right? Developing psychological flexibility is not just a, oh, there's no good and bad anymore. I'm going to just live in the gray. It, it takes time to do these things. You can't just change your mindset overnight. And I think that's where psychological professionals come in. Um, but I think moving forward, yeah, I think removing rules is so big. We see it in the anti-diet culture movement that we shouldn't have rules around food. And that's one of the huge um, it's one of the huge factors that I think is kind of neglected a little bit because 
from what I see on social media, there are still so many people out there who preach the opposite of what's going to be helpful in the long term. Um, so in terms of moving forward, yeah, I think the psychological flexibility is important. Um, addressing, hmm, what else? I think addressing emotion is a huge one. Emotion is a huge driver of our behavior. And I think when people struggle with their binging and their emotional eating and their stress eating, then it's important to address the kind of psychological factors that are associated with that. Um, I'm trying to think of what else in terms of behavior change moving forward. I guess I'm just strictly looking at the psychological variables. So it would be around the kind of mindset changes. I think one of the other things that predicted it quite well was how we look at our failures for want of a better word. Um, and I did a post on this recently that people, people are going to have bumps in the road. Like you doing your PhD, you're going to have bumps in the road. I'm going to have bumps in the road. And it's how we react to it and how we see it um, that can help us, I guess, get back on the horse. Um, it's been shown that when people see it as more of a long-term lifestyle change rather than like a short-term diet, that they're more likely to succeed. So looking at changing your overall lifestyle rather than for six weeks, I'm going to do this program to achieve this weight for this wedding isn't going to be helpful again in the long term. So I think those are some of the psychological factors that, that moving forward um, might be helpful to address. But again, they're not maybe commonly associated with um, behavior change techniques. Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I do think that um, it, it's very, very possible for people in, in nutrition to uh, inappropriately use certain psychological techniques. Um, I think that's probably quite rife within the industry. Um, I, I also really, really like the point that you made about psychological flexibility. And I kind of ju it just brought me back to the comment that you made on dichotomous thinking and the relationship between um, uh, dichotomous thinking and kind of poorer outcomes when it comes to um, to, to success with, with weight loss. Um, Joe, we, we could literally chat about this for eternity, I'm fairly sure. Um, but I, I, you've been really, really generous with your time already, and I, I don't want um, to, to take up too much more of it. But um, I was wondering, I want to ask you two questions. And one of them is, um, for people who are in this industry, people who they might be PTs, people who might be uh, nutritionists, dietitians, or even for people who are just interested in themselves, if they want to learn more about behavior change, um, what are some of the best resources for them to, uh, to look into? Um, well, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to develop my own CPD for um, health professionals because I think there is a lack of awareness there. Now, there's a couple of BPS documents that are really cool, but in terms of like ready available, um, readily available resources that are online, it's so, so difficult. Um, I would suggest... Um, there, I, I know that there's a, a, an online UK-based course on behavior change interventions that's done through Queen's. I'm not sure how good it is, but um, I do know that it exists. But, but again, that's a CBD course. It's, it's going to cost money. It's all done online. Um, it's really difficult. What, what I think I see the field moving forward towards is that MDT idea. Uh, in psychology, therapists do a thing called um, supervision. I'm not sure how... how much that's utilized in, in nutrition but basically the idea is that as part of your practice you go and reflect with another practitioner who is your supervisor and they give you feedback on how you're approaching different issues i would love to see that in the field of nutrition with psychology professionals so i'd love the idea that for example a nutritionist or a dietitian who has a caseload of 20 or 30 clients would be able to reflect on some of their clients who they think might 
um, have psychological issues going on or, or kind of mental barriers to change and be able to reflect with a psychology professional on what the best approach is for that and just get, get insight from a professional um, in order to, to make those changes. And I think that's something that I'm going to kind of lobby for, I guess, and, and it's one of the services that I'm going to offer over the next couple of years um, is, is using other professionals when it might be not even outside your competency, but just something that you might want to run past to make sure that you're using best practice in terms of this, this kind of thing. So at the moment, I'm not sure really. The, the answer is I'm not sure what resources are re readily available, but I know that they're not that um, accessible, let's say. I think there's a lot more that, that we can do in, in, that, in that front. I, I think the idea of having um, a, a professional, like in the psychology field, uh, offering that kind of guidance um, that, I, that that's absolutely fascinating. I think it's a it's a fantastic idea, and I, I'd love to see you uh, to develop it a little bit. Um, because I I know that there's a lot of people in this industry who would jump at the chance to to have that kind of feedback on on their own approaches. So that's that is really fascinating. Um, Joe, uh, where where can people kind of follow you and find out more about you? Where are you active? Um, uh, if you want to shoot me, I can see a question popping in there and I can see there was one or two more. If anyone does want to ask me questions, I mightn't answer you personally, but I will use your questions as posts and content um, to kind of share with everybody. And I think that question that about intuitive eating and health at every size is a really interesting one. Um, so I might rob that. But if anyone wants to contact me, um, my Instagram is headfirstzero. Um, I also run the Head First podcast. I work for a company called Spectrum Mental Health. You can email me at, um, what's my email address? Joe O'Brien at mentalhealth.ie. Um, if you have any kind of inquiries or, or anything like that, if you just want to um, follow my content or just have questions about my content or behavior change or psychology or whatever it is, um, Head First Zero is the Instagram. So yeah, check it out. Um, and I'd highly recommend everybody do it. If you're not following Joe already, he puts out some absolutely amazing content. Um, it's refreshing to see somebody in in this kind of, uh, in the field, putting out so much good and kind of useful and relevant co uh, content out there. Um, so I want to thank you for that. And Joe, I want to also thank you for your time tonight. Um, I knew it was going to be a fantastic conversation and you didn't disappoint at all. Um, and I think there's a very, very good chance that uh, we'll uh, have to get you back on um, at some time in the future. Thanks, Bill, mate. I really appreciate you yeah, having me on. Well, I uh, hope to see you soon, okay? Have a great night. Absolutely. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, everybody, thank you so much uh, for tuning in. I really, really hope you enjoyed that. Um, I absolutely did. Um, so many different things to talk about and to think about and things that we couldn't get into as much detail as we would like, but I knew that was going to happen. I knew we wouldn't have enough time to talk about everything, but at least we opened the uh, the, the floor to conversation, so to speak. Um, if you enjoyed it, let me know. Drop me a DM or whatever. Um, uh, that'll be This will be uploaded as a podcast next week, um, and you can watch it and listen to it as much as you want. And I'm also going to start putting these up on YouTube as well. Um, so there's another way that you can uh, watch these. Thanks to everybody for tuning in tonight. Uh, enjoy the rest of your evening, and uh, see you soon. Bye-bye.